0: Welcome to the NPM podcast. I'm your host, John Burke. The renewable energy universe might look a, a lot different today than when this program actually airs during the week of October 4th. But nevertheless, I feel confident enough to discuss the emerging market of carbon trading with Ash Redcar, head of ESG and energy transition for the Prax Group, a global integrated oil company. Welcome to the program, Ash. Thanks for welcoming on the program, John. It's it's a privilege. So before we get into it, there was a recent development in this marketplace earlier this week uh, on September 28th when CIBC announced the completion of Project Carbon's inaugural pilot trade between the Nature Conservancy of Canada, a leading national land conservation organization and the United Kingdom-based NatWest Group. Uh, The legally binding sale included voluntary carbon credits issued by Vera, which manages a global program for the certif- certification of GHG emission reduction projects. Uh, AFS, this is truly your world, and I, I look forward to having a, a Q&A discussion about it. Um, there's an emerging market going on for carbon credits. Uh, State as California have pushed the market along by incentivizing uh, massive RNG and sustainable diesel production through the uh, uh, LCFS. Um so, Ash, to just to kick us off, perhaps explain what carbon credits are and how they are valued on the open market.
1: I will do that and thank you uh, for bringing me onto the program um,
0: again you know I'm very
1: really happy to be with you uh so before I start off talking about carbon credits, let's go back to your announcement on um project carbon, which I believe was uh an announcement made out of Canada between NatWest Group and Nature Conservancy of Canada, if I wasn't mistaken. Mm -hmm. And what I really liked about it was, you know, it is a a manifestation of how different stakeholders like banks, conservancy groups, um, you know, institutions, corporations, and individuals are are finally taking ownership and responsibility of, of developing a more sustainable path to climate change and making sure that we are on a path of uh, net zero, hopefully by you know, 2050, if not earlier. I think, so t- to be honest, I have to give kudos to CIBC. I have to give kudos to NatWest for, you know, putting their money where their mouth is. I think and talking is cheap. People are actually doing it. And that, I think, is is, is worth to be complimented. To come back to carbon credits, uh, I'll try to keep it simple uh, for the audience. The way I think of carbon credits, they are a recognized mechanism that allows individuals and companies to invest in environmental projects worldwide that contribute towards reducing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. The way I look at it is companies and individuals can account for the unavoidable emissions. That is what I call something you can't get out of buying carbon credits from certified environmental and decarbonization activities that support community development protect the ecosystem or install efficient technology to reduce or remove emissions from the atmosphere the second question which i'll try to answer on you is how do you put a price on it not so not so easy i think uh, it's it's far from straightforward um it's probably a function of four, at a high level it's a function of four things. Geography, where it came from, vintage year, when the credit got generated, delivery period, when it's going to be available. So all else equal, a credit tomorrow is worth less, worth more than a credit five years ago. It's cars. And the final thing is, what type of carbon removal project is it? Is it a avoidance? Is it a reduction or a removal outright? So, there's a lot of nuances and idiosyncrasies to it, but I'm trying to you know, hopefully dimensionalize it for the audience today, so that's all I have.
0: Great, thanks Ash. And I know uh, I was trying to simplify things earlier when I talked about RNG, which has been a growing area, but I know the carbon credit market's much larger than that. Uh, can you walk us through what projects lend themselves to carbon credits and why? So you would be surprised. I think uh,
1: the carbon credit market, you know, it's really small today, But when it's all said and done, I think it's going to be be 500 times bigger than what global commodity markets are today. So I think it's going to be probably in about five to seven years from now, I expect it to be the biggest market worldwide. So just to give you an idea of the market size, I think if you look at carbon credits, there are like three broad buckets or categories. One is what we call avoidance projects. So these are basically renewable energy projects like solar, hydro, uh, projects that avoid emitting GHGs completely. And GHG stands for greenhouse gases. The second category is reduction. They reduce the volume of GHGs emitted into the atmosphere. So that is cook, stove, fuel efficiency, development of energy efficient buildings, containment of methane landfills you know something like that and the last of those categories is removal they actually suck carbon dioxide from the atmosphere that's remove ghg strip and that is basically your reforestation projects forest management wetland management like for farming carbon capture carbon sequestration and now the newest thing is direct air capture which are big equipment that just suck carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. So coming back to it, it's three categories. It's avoidance, production, and removal. Uh,
0: great. Thanks for that. Um, so talking yeah. about the, the, the carbon cuts themselves, can you talk about what are the typical parties involved in the trade of uh, carbon credits? Okay.
1: So at a high level, right, there are four key uh, participants. One is what we call the project developers. So that is the outright conservancy or forestry or farmland or solar project. So they are the people actually developing what we call an accredited verified carbon project. So that's one. The second one is an end buyer. These are basically fortune-funded companies. They could be shipping companies. They could be end users like Coca-Cola or Pepsi. they could be the oil majors like ExxonMobil, BP, Shell. So they are the end buyers. They are the guys who are carbon emitters. So they need to buy carbon credits to become net zero. The third people uh, are the people like us to a certain extent. We are what we call retail traders. What we do is we develop an end-to-end solution from where we connect the farmers and the developers of the project to the end buyers. And making it into a like an end-to-end supply chain. So think about us as the Amazon of uh, the carbon, uh, the Amazon Prime of the carbon credit market, where you somebody has placed an order. It's my job to get it from point A to point B in the format he wants it. So I think of me as the Amazon Prime of it. And the fourth and the most important, in my opinion, is the GHG registry. So these guys are effectively the sheriffs and the enforcers of carbon credit standards worldwide. And I think. Thankfully, the reason carbon credits have taken off is because of GHG registries that have have ensured a rigorous and robust development of decarbonization standards. I think without GHG registries, there would not be a lot of transparency and trust in this market. For a long time, I think before these GHG registries came, there was no way to know if voluntary carbon credits were, were a legitimate decarbonization instrument or it was just snake oil so i think you know ghg registries have done a really spectacular job to ensure trust and transparency in the market so that's my four big
0: parties involved
1: in carbon credit markets
0: and that refers to shops like vera too right but when you say the registries correct vera is one of the ghg registries that's right right and uh for the the readers out there you can google some and to be honest there are a few out there it's not just one or two
1: so there are four of them from the top of my head there is the gold standard there is the climate action reserve car uh third is vera um which is it used to be called verified carbon standards then there is the american carbon registry which focuses on a lot of u.s projects then there is a cdm climate differentiated mechanism So there is a whole bunch of GHG registries out there. They all seem to have their strengths and weaknesses, but by and large, they have done a very good job in developing a framework. What will be probably the biggest market uh, in the history of commodity markets?
0: Great. So let's talk about um, the products that feed into this market, um, such as biomass again, which is RNG as an end market, and then uh carbon capture which has been much discussed and again uh, going back to what the world might look like today versus say next week if there's a certain vote on the evening of September 30 if it could be a different discussion but um talk to me what which projects are really aimed at reducing carbon emissions um and therefore lead to more uh carbon credit offsets versus less and sort of why is that So well, that's a good
1: question I think um I think what I would say is, the amount of carbon credits generated, they are not necessarily a function of the project type. They all, at the end of the day, serve a core purpose. They're doing a the job of reducing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. Where I think you got to normalize these different projects is capital costs required upfront for a specific decarbonization initiative, or if there's any tax break, you know, where either state governments or national governments or counties give for certain projects. So I'll give you an example, right? The direct air capture, arguably, uh, can remove carbon emissions on a massive scale. And when I say massive, I mean a small direct air capture can suck up 10% of my, Microsoft's emissions worldwide. Just to give a perspective, how 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 powerful it is. But it costs in the billions of dollars, right? So 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 the market price is not for everybody. So somewhere, I think. A lot of these projects, you've got to normalize them for sticker price, working capital, you know, what kind of tax incentives are going to be put by government. So, which is why I think where carbon credits have morphed into, the, the path of least resistance for us is, you know, reforestation, planting more trees, uh, restoring ecosystems. Uh, I, I think it's, it's, it's much easier for um, corporations to get the ball rolling on decarbonization by funding local community-based initiatives.
0: Okay, um, great. So what um, what characteristics would you say define whether the value of a carbon credit goes up or down? So at a high level, carbon credits are no different than equities, right? They're driven,
1: they're driven by the broad demand supply factors. There is no, think of it as equities on a different scale. But the other good example I always give is carbon credits are like buying a car okay at a high level it's the geography of the carbon credit so where does it come from so it's like think about in cars right german cars are probably more expensive than japanese or korean cars so so this geography matters the regulatory landscape matters so like california or europe or asia where i think governments have been more proactive that drives the price of a credit because Corporations are forced to buy compliance uh, offsets, which in turn drives up the price of voluntary offsets. So the regulatory landscape is important. Third, I think it's a type of project, um, which I mentioned, is it an avoidance project, a reduction project, or a removal project? In general, reduction projects are cheaper than avoidance projects, and avoidance projects are cheaper than removal projects. So it's a function of the broad category of projects as well. And the final thing is, what we call additionality in a project so to give you an example if you plant a whole bunch of trees did it create any other benefits did it create benefits like regenerative soil practices did it create no reduced use of chemicals reduced use of water so what more benefits did we create for the environment beyond carbon also acts that intangible value of an offset so Again, you know, the best example I always give people is carbon credits are like cars. There is a tangible element to it, but there is an intangible uh, element in terms of branding and how people identify themselves in the, the type of the car they buy. Carbon credits are very similar in how corporations buy and sell carbon credits.
0: Okay. Uh, with respect to those registries we talked to earl- about earlier, um, have they lent themselves to a more liquid market for carbon credits, or is it still more of a bespoke market?
1: So on a scale of 1 to 10, I would say the liquidity probably is in the, I would say, 4, 4.5, because it's not quite got there. It's still fairly bespoke because people are still dipping their toes into it as, from a corporation standpoint, particularly in the U.S. But that market, I would say, in the last six months has exploded in terms of acceptability and gone mainstream. So I really do believe that over the next 12 to 18 months, this is going to be a lot more fungible and it's going to be a lot more liquid and transparent market, which will help everyone make market-based decisions because there will be clear pricing signals for decarbonization initiatives going forward.
0: Uh, Great. So... Is there any regulatory body which governs trades at this point, uh, or do you think policies need to be implemented at a federal level to ensure a a safer, more conducive trading environment?
1: So so currently I would say carbon markets exist under both mandatory schemes and voluntary schemes. Okay, so compliance markets are created uh, just to distinguish them. Compliance markets are created and regulated by mandatory national, regional, or international carbon reduction regimes. But voluntary carbon offset programs are are have kind of been the genesis of how they've interacted with compliance markets. So if you're to categorize them by examples, like in California. The Climate Action Reserve, which was one of the GHG registries, developed a series of voluntary offset projects and protocols that eventually morphed and got adopted into what we call the California Compliance Carbon Offset Program or the CART program. So somewhere the voluntary offset became a foundational building block for compliance offsets. Uh, Similarly, I think... uh, most compliance offsets, I think, are what we call regional or national cap-and-trade emission schemes. So, like, the two of them I can think of are the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, RGGI, and there is the European Union Emissions Trading Scheme, the EU ETS. So, these are all compliance offsets. They're all cap-and-trade programs. But I think they are, uh, it, it, again, Canada is not very really far, and it appears that China is going the same way they are, um, this is where the government has taken a more proactive role in assigning a cost of carbon emission to individuals and corporations.
0: And uh, for readers of uh, NPM, uh, they'll note that um, RGGI is certainly gaining a lot of popularity as of late, as um, Pennsylvania was, uh, is kind of looking to join um, RGGI right now. Uh, in the the Northeast. Um, Sorry, I mean, they've joined it and um, it's it's growing, uh, certainly in the U.S. Mm -hmm. Um, So uh, Europe has uh, certainly embraced Green Deal economics a lot faster than the U.S. market. Uh, The U.S. market, again, is certainly trying to catch up. And uh, going back to that um, aforementioned infrastructure bill and reconciliation that's out there and again may or may not be affected by next Monday. Um, you know, they're trying to catch up, but is there any precedent overseas in terms of installing rules around carbon credit trading?
1: So I think the EU ETS was clearly a first more in the space. So I think it kind of, I think when everyone looks at developing a regulatory framework, we look at Europe, right? That's clearly, I think when I see what's underway in Singapore and China, they seem to be variations of the EU ETS program. The U.S. has not done it yet. I see uh, initiatives underway currently by the American Petroleum Institute, the EPA. They're also looking at how to develop the market. So I think it's only a matter of time, frankly, where I believe something similar to EU ETS or or what's happening in Singapore is going to develop in some format uh, in the U.S. as well. But if you ask me what is the timeline for developing a compliance market nationwide, I couldn't tell you that. I just think if we take, if we as a country take that much time to pass an infrastructure bill, you know, it's only a matter of, you know, you can imagine how much time it will take to have a nationally acceptable consensus on compliance carbon market. So I think, you know, it's a function of how the roadmap from here will develop, you know, in Washington.
0: Great. Thanks. Just a couple of follow up questions here. Uh, just when we get to the uh, projects uh, involved here, the avoidance, reduction, and removal, uh, mm-hmm. what have you observed as being like a project type that's emerged and has been more, an, an, sorry, more of an active category than, than others and, and sort of why? That's an interesting question
1: uh, because I, you know, my transactional history, and I've probably done about 20 to 25 transactions. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: It has truly been all over the place. I think, I think uh, industries that are, uh, industries, it's a function of the industry and the client. So if you are an oil producer, right, you want to, uh, concentrate on projects that you can, you know, which is about either methane reductions, emission reductions, landfill development, so what people look at are, are de defo- are, are decarbonization projects that can dovetail into their normal corporate footprint. Right. Similarly, for example, like if you were a coffee producer or a coffee importer like Starbucks, right? You're going to concentrate on uh you know, defo- you know forestation initiatives in coffee producing countries like Vietnam and Colombia and Guatemala and Brazil. Similarly, if you are a a shipping company you would fo- focus on biofuels and you know sustainable you know fuels so i think every industry is choosing to adopt a different roadmap mm-hmm. so i wouldn't want to uh simplify it by waving a, a a common uh, theme to it but what i've realized quickly is there is definitely price sensitivity on what kind of initiative you want but they also want to uh, co-optimize it with does this project reflect the ethos of our corporate footprint? And I think they they try to mirror it a bit better, so that it's an easier sell to you know stakeholders and uh, shareholders who have become a far more vocal and activist about emissions uh, going forward as well.
0: Yeah, and to your point, uh, also earlier this week. Um, uh midstream giant Enbridge and Vanguard Renewables um, announced a partnership to design and build eight RNG project sites. And I was like, okay, so who, who's benefiting from this? And you have to kind of scroll down the release to see that Vanguard has this alliance, a farm-powered strategic alliance, which includes Starbucks, Unilever, and Dairy Farmers of America, who are contributing you know, their food and farm waste to Vanguard as RNG feedstock. And so it ties into multiple parties a project like that so um but that's that's no, uh, yeah.
1: yeah absolutely
0: and that, that's no exception there's certainly a lot of other projects like that so,
1: um, so I, as I said, you, you if people are becoming pickier people are becoming smarter people are a bit more uh there's definitely more uh finesse and precision in how corporations are going about it now i think the market as i said has definitely become a lot more sophisticated and informed in the last six months. No question about it.
0: Yeah, and just tying up um, today's program about the number of participants in this market and probably speaking to your point about how limit the market could get in a couple of years. Again, when you look at that CIBC, CIBC transaction, again, who are we dealing with here? CIBC, uh, the Nature Conservancy of Canada and NatWest groups, some you know large institutions. I was actually going to ask you the question about whether you've observed any like institutions increasing their presence in this area, but I'm almost getting the sense that, that, again, there's going to be a lot of new participants entering this area today and tomorrow at this point, but what are your observations there? I can tell you that
1: no banking and financial institution is, uh, is decreasing their presence. Hmm. You know, you know, we we joked about it actually. uh This was about two or three months ago with a banking friend of mine that the things have got so different now that ESG used to be slide forty nine of a fifty page slideshow, and now it has become slide number two. So right. suddenly, the, the the first thing people want to talk about is tell me what your ESG strategies, and then I'll tell you if I want to even borrow or lend money to you and so clearly you know the discussion has changed in corporate boardrooms the discussions have changed in bankers and clients and in a strange way the banks have become the catalyst of change because if you control money you probably control which client gets it based on what he's doing to the environment and and that i think my opinion uh was clearly the is clearly very very uh you know sitting from where i am you can absolutely make the difference out i think you can no longer just you know shrug it off as if it is just a lip service i think esg is mainstream it is made into corporate boardrooms it is unfortunately or fortunately for all of us it is something it is now the 800 pound or 8000 pound gorilla in the room that we all have to reckon as individuals corporations and society so there is if anybody is of the opinion that you know we, we can get away from it i think that that ship is saved right completely
0: yeah okay well uh ash that's all the time we got so i really appreciate you taking the time today and yeah um, thank you so much thank you thank you again and uh for everyone else uh, please uh, tune in to us next time work out have a good thank evening thanks so much Th- thanks ash appreciate it.